So I'm pretty sure that Boris Johnson has been listening uh, to Trash Future because that speech he just did at the UN in which he said the following quote, in the future, voice connectivity will be in every room and almost every object. Your mattress will monitor your nightmares and your fridge will beep for more cheese. Oh, he's heard about the MIT Media Lab <laughs> and the recording pillow. <laughs> uh, you may keep secrets from your friends, from your parents, your children, your doctor, even your personal trainer, but it takes real effort to conceal your thoughts from Google. Uh, AI, what will that mean? Helpful robots washing and caring for an aging population or pink eye terminators sent back from the future to cull the human race? Hang on. <laughs> pink eye terminators. Didn't they have they red eyes? Pink the terminators eyed. got shit in its eye. <laughs> yeah, the, the terminators did a bare ass fart on a, on a pillow and now <laughs> they're all sick. Damn. This seems like the slow process towards um, Boris Johnson admitting he's being blackmailed over how much hentai he's been downloading. <laughs> <laughs> um... Or, or fine, and finally, of the final quotes, I'm going to read from this uh, from, from this bizarre and rambling speech. What will synthetic biology stand for? Restoring our livers and our eyes with the miracle regeneration of tissues, like some fantastic hangover cure? Or will it bring terrifying limbless chickens to our tables? Terrifying limbless <laughs> chickens. Oh, he's talking about Jeremy Corbyn again. <laughs> That's what he's going for. It, um, it was, uh, usually, I prefer chickens with two arms and two legs on my table. Exactly. And exactly one penis. <sighs> Thanks, Paul Embry. Chicken dick <laughs> is actually a delicacy. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to this week's free edition of Trash Future. I'm Riley, that guy from that podcast you're listening to. I'm joined here in studio with Milo Edwards. Uh, hello, it's me. I-, I too am worried about my fridge beeping for more cheese and finding out how much hentai I download. Good morning. Uh, Nate Bethay, Mr. Boards. Yep, it's me. Uh, it does seem as though Boris Johnson is just, it, like this is one extended bet he had with a fellow columnist. Like you have no idea how far I can take this shtick and it's starting to unravel, but he refuses to lose the bet. Well, I, I suspect it's like from, you know how at like White's Gentleman's Club, they would have... Um, I don't know anything about White's Gentleman's Club, Riley. <laughs> <laughs> Riley once again showing too Riley much reveals. of his hands yeah, too exactly. early on. Well, you I, can, I'm, from, I'm from Carmel, Indiana, Riley. I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> well, you can, you can bet on anything. So in the, in the betting book, there used to be you know, large wagers made on which, of a, which raindrop would reach the bottom of a pane of glass first and so on and so on. It mm. could be that this is just a multi-year, shut up, I'm really now in my yeah. own head. <laughs> White's Gentleman's Club seems like a very on-the-nose name for what is already a gentleman's club. <laughs> uh, and we're joined by Hussein by phone. Hey, I, I think all of you are wrong, because I think what this actually is, is like precedent for Boris Johnson to actually replace the statue of Winston Churchill with an Evangelion. <laughs> this mm. is the first of three speeches where, where that will then happen. Yeah. And uh, returning champion, I would say, for Pete now, Tom Cabassi. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. And I think really you should get Dominic Cummings on the show. Look, I want. <laughs> He's too smart. We can't do it. It would break you the just recording handle equipment, it, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. We, our, our our mixer would. We would need at least sixty four channels in our mixer mm. to handle his many strings of thought that he would bring together. I hear he has to be kept suspended in a sort of magnetic field to prevent his intelligence from melting his surroundings. He's he's Zordon <laughs> from the Power Rangers. <laughs> yeah, he just exists in a screen to tell you when to be racist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, what he knows that the secrets to establishing a permanent mining presence on Mars. Mars were all contained in Thucydides if you know how to read it. Mm. Anyway, um, so before um, before much much further ado, uh, we have done what we we're doing what we usually do whenever UK politics gets just a little bit too confusing, and we've mm. brought Tom to explain it to us and by extension everyone else. Mm. Um, so we pretend to be dumb so you don't have to <laughs> pretend. <laughs> um, so just to catch everyone up on on Brexit, I'm going to try to summarize it. You tell me where I've gone wrong. Go for it. Uh, the, the deadline for, for leaving the European Union was moved to about October 31st, which I believe we predicted in the last episode. Yep. Um, no deal brinksmanship has just basically been moved back to October 31st, which I believe we also predicted in our last yes. episode. Um, the Conservative Party realizing that there can be no more 
false spring extensions because this extension only happened because Theresa May said she was going to have talks with Jeremy Corbyn, which she said she wouldn't before. Therefore, the EU said, okay, this is enough of material change that we can give an extension. There's no more of that. So they have to do something, which I think is what we said before as well. Yep. And now a bunch of con- all the Europhile conservatives or many of them have either decided that it's either no- they have to go with no deal or leave the conservative party, which has happened. That has absolutely happened. Uh, and now we're in a position where Boris Johnson wants to take us out of the European Union with no deal on October 31st, or does he? I think that's the mistake. I, yeah. th- I, don't, I think it's a mistake to think that Boris Johnson's objectives re- revolve around Brexit. Brexit is a tool, it's an instrument for him, a tactic, if you will, um, to gain and retain power. And that's mm-hmm. been consistently true. So in 2016, you know, he picked what he thought would be the side that would give him the greatest chance of getting the leadership of the Conservative Party. I don't think he particularly thought he was picking the winning side. He just thought he was picking the side that would be popular with the Tory party membership. Mm. And I think every single action that he's taken since then has been all about getting to the position of Prime Minister. And now that he's there, it's about retaining that position. And that's the best way to understand it. In fact, I would go as far as to say he doesn't want no deal, not because he actually cares about the consequences for the country, but because he knows that the consequences are so substantial that he couldn't win a general election in the aftermath of a no deal exit. Okay. I think so I think then and then also finally, he tried to prorogue parliament uh so he could try and limit the amount of time that the opposition could inflict defeat after humiliating defeat on him in parliament. Uh, and that prorogation was ruled unconstitutional. Well, so I think I think if you look at the prorogation, I think the real purpose of it was to force the pace on Parliament. So what he wanted was a people versus Parliament election. He didn't want no deal because it caused lots of problems for him. So actually quite helpful to have a prorogation that forced Parliament to act in the time frame that he wanted them to act in, um, in order to try and precipitate a general election. So the purpose of it was to get them to legislate against no deal so that that could be the basis on which he went to the country, effectively saying, Parliament's trapping us inside the EU. If you want us to get out then you, and for Brexit to be over, then you have to vote to give me, Boris Johnson, a majority. So that was the objective. I think um, what he didn't want was if Parliament was able to sit, they could have postponed that decision to a point where there wasn't sufficient time to... Uh, have a general election before the 31st of October and him to be in office and then compelled to ask for an extension. I don't think they expected um, the opposition parties to resist an election in the way that they have, um, but I think he's simply adjusted. I'm personally very sceptical about polling that says, if this happens, what will you think? And I think in truth, if he is compelled to, to ask for an extension, which I don't think he'll do, I think there'll be a way around that and I can come back to that. Mm. But even if he was, I don't think it would be as catastrophic as everyone else seems to think. I think he'd just say, see, these bastards forced me to do it. And that's the issue. I think on the prorogation, it was a, and the legality of it, it was in a sense a relatively technical thing, which was what was the purpose of seeking of it and were you telling the truth? And the purpose was clearly nakedly political um, and therefore unacceptable. But that just shows that if you're going to do something like that, um, you need to not tell anyone that that's what you're doing it for. Mm. So if you tell everyone that you've got this nefarious plan, um, <laughs> it doesn't work out. It's like, you know, in the Bond movies where they're like, yeah. Mr. Bond, I'm going to kill you really, really slowly, tell you all of my plans to destroy the world mm. and give you a, a massive time window for you to escape <laughs> and stop me. Like, is that approach to being kind of nefarious and evil? And of course, what happened, just like the Bond movie, right? Parliament escaped they managed to stop the wicked plan and it kind of failed. If they just shut the fuck up about it, then it would probably have worked. I, I actually have a huge a huge boner for the Supreme Court judgment because um, my girlfriend, who's a barrister, explained it to me. And basically, it's, it's what Tom was saying, but they worked out that because, um, because a parliamentary convention, they've never tried to contravene a parliamentary convention by the executive before. And so they basically said, well, if they tried to contravene a statute, 
which they the Supreme Court decided to rate the same as a con- as a convention, then they would have to have a reasonable justification. So they were like, so does the government have reasonable justification? And the government had given them the internal memos, which were like written by Dominic Cummings and were like, yeah, we're going to do this because then the opposition won't be able to do anything. And then there was a secondary piece of evidence, which was just the same memo, but Boris Johnson had written on it. And it was just in his handwriting saying like, top hole, poppycock. And they were like, <laughs> this does not seem to the court to constitute reasonable justification. No, exactly, right? So if you were going to do this, they need to sit in a room, write nothing down, and then hold the line in internal correspondence and publicly, but they basically mm. were too full of themselves to pull off their nefarious plan. They just love, they, they just love showing their ass. They just yeah. love no, that's it. not that's wearing exactly pants. It. Well, it's the problem. The problem when you when you hire someone who's so in love with his own intellect as Dominic Cummings, he's... He, he lives to be the Bond villain explaining to Bond yeah. on the laser table precisely mm. the code to stop the satellite because the code to stop the satellite is like a reference to Sun Tzu. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. No, that's exactly what yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's Art of War 1, 2, 3, Mr. Bond, a book I have memorized. <laughs> <laughs> Except this is Britain, so the laser table would be a table with like a huge like uh, ornate mace hanging above it like a sword of Damocles. <laughs> <laughs> and so now we're at the point where... Where I want to talk a little bit more about extension as well, and then get into some of the psychology here, because I think something we've discussed before, well, before turning on the mics, is that like really very little has effectively changed on the ground. Like many things were just tendencies that already existed playing themselves out. But one of the things that is, I think, relatively new is the idea that Boris Johnson is being encouraged to go to jail in order to um, because he's otherwise legally compelled to seek an extension. Is that is there any any truth to that, that if Boris Johnson does not seek an extension, as Parliament has instructed him to do, that he would be at risk of imprisonment? Well, so the, the, the way it would work would be if he broke the law and didn't seek the extension. There's all this talk of having a secret plan up their sleeve. I don't really buy that. Um, they've got some clever workaround for the law. I don't think that really works because I think the courts would rule that Parliament's intentions were clear because they laid them out a few weeks ago. It's blindly obvious what the intention is. And you can't, if you commit an act that is to break the intention and the purpose of a law, the fact that you technically kind of don't break it doesn't really count. Like the legal system is smart enough to have allowed for that possibility. And so the way that it would work would be if he broke the law, there would then be a Supreme Court judgment. They would then pass a um, order basically compelling compliance with the law. If he failed to fulfill that order, then he could be done for contempt. And the ultimate sanction from, for contempt of court is to be thrown into prison. I think what's more likely in that scenario is that Johnson would lay down the gauntlet and basically get to the date, say, I'm not sending the letter, and I quit, and then force the opposition parties to find another prime minister to fulfill those terms, or um, force, uh, uh, in, in, the, in that moment, force some other means for the letter to be sent, whether it's a court order for the cabinet and secretary to send it on behalf of the government or whatever it would be. But for him, he's clearly put too much stock into not sending the letter. So I don't think that he will, but I think his primary means will be to get to that date, say, I told you so, and I stick, stick to my word, and I'm so principled that I'd even resign this office resign it and get someone else to ask for the extension. Would that just just to clarify, would that be somebody else in the Tory party that they would appoint another prime minister or are you saying that they would have to form a caretaker government or something along those lines? Or it'd be someone who could command the majority of the in the House of Commons and it would force the opposition parties to work together in order to alight on a particular candidate. There's a lot of chatter at the moment about forming this sort of government of national unity to take over from Boris Johnson because everything that's been going on these last few days. I'm a little sceptical whether that will come to pass. I think you're seeing the Lib Dems, all their top marginal seats are held by Tories, so they're not going to be prepared to back Corbyn into the office. For the SNP, they've said they're happy to support Corbyn into the office because they're chasing Labour votes. (laughs) So um, different parties are positioning based on their own electoral interest. I think one thing that is definitely clear, though, is that if those opposition parties are going to be prepared to support a Labour-led temporary government, that they will want to install someone whose career is behind them. 
because they're not going to want to, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, Keir Starmer, Emily Thornberry, any of those kind of figures who could be a potential future serious prime minister and mm. serve a full term, they're not going to want to give them the dignity of the office. So they'll pick someone like, you know, Margaret Beckett, who um, I think is older than Munro, the ever living, um, <laughs> and, or, or Hillary Benn or someone like that, that they know has no front story um, if they do go for it. So I think it's quite unlikely to come to pass, in part because the natural response from the Labour leadership will be to tell them to get stuffed. So I think it's quite unlikely. But in that 11th hour thing, if Boris Johnson refuses to send the letter, then there is a possibility that just out of sheer desperation, people have to coalesce around a particular figure just in order to uh, send the request for the extension. Bam Margera. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd, I'd love to see that. That would be the ultimate conclusion of like the three years of just Brexit insanity, just a government led by Bam Margera because he's the only figure neutral enough to coalesce the SNP, Labour, the Lib Dems, the fucking Plaid Cymru and whoever the fuck else. Imagine, imagine Bam Margera having to pronounce Plaid Cymru, having only read it. I would be so ready for that. That would be ace. I see. Yeah, this is... This is st- I'm Steve-O, and this is send a letter requesting an Article 50 extension. <laughs> and it, just, and it, just, it just like explodes with green paint as soon as they open it. Love it. Um, so also, I'd like to, like, because like, like I've said before, a lot of what's happening now are just the tendencies that we talked about in the last episode naturally playing themselves out. Brink, brinksmanship and, and decisions and decisions made under duress. And in effect... Um, much of those much of those decisions being borne out in the sense of who can command votes in parliament and no deal clearly can't and the question being just who will the probably who will the government of national unity coalesce around once boris johnson pushes us to the brink but blinks before no deal actually hits i kind of want to go a little bit back because much of this will probably have to be resolved by a general election at some point and the question of europe isn't going to go away on november 1st it's not it's not going anywhere like we are, there are still going to be Eurosceptics. There are still going to be Europhiles, and depending on you know what what gets promised at that general election, the unilateral canceling of Article Fifty, further extensions into the infinite period of time until the extension of Article Fifty is just a religious ritual that we have no memory of what it actually means, and so on and so on. The a- actually working out what that would Euro- be amazing, yeah. wouldn't it? Like in a hundred years from now, someone starts a Brexit religion. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not quite that bad. But I think about the uh, the Iran deal. The um, I, I can't remember the acronym. I think it was like the the joint uh, plan course of action or something like that had to be ratified in perpetuity every two years. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where it's like, here's a deal, but if anyone like the idea is that it would be such a such a time bomb that no one would no one would actually do it. No one would actually fail to ratify. Because like, oh no, clearly this is just a logical thing, but it has to be it can't be permanent. It has to be ratified every two years. And then of course Donald Trump well, decided to pull out of it. But yeah. the idea, like it's weird how that seems like such an insane precedent, but it has been done in the past. Iran, it's run by the hamburglar. You can't <laughs> trust that guy. He well, steals hamburgers. It's, it's a it's the liberal it's the, this is the problem, I think, with a liberal approach to politics by fiat from the top, that you say, well, we've put the virtuous people in, we've got our Obama, we've got our whoever, and we're just going to give them the, we're going to assume that they'll just keep ratifying this good thing, because they assume that there will never be some, a, like a, someone on the far right who just comes in, takes over, and then just doesn't do the obvious correct liberal answer. No, and- I, don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think in that case it's particularly true. I think, I think in that case... It's how do you build a majority for a controversial pres- decision, and part of the way that you build a majority for it is by allowing for the possibility for it to change in the future. So by saying it has to be renewed every two years, you can expand the number of people because you can say to people, people are then permitted to say, well, we've given them two years, and if it doesn't work, there's a cutoff point. But I think that's the fundamental reason for it was 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 to be able to do that. I don't think it's, necessarily think it's a liberal belief that there'll always be virtuous people at the top because they think they're so imb- it's so sort of blessed with virtue but they also believe the other side isn't mm. so i think it is i think it is a, it's just a more straightforward political calculation i see cuz i was going to relate that to the lib dem strategy for um the stopping of brexit which is no we're just going to unilaterally cancel article 50 the sort of the the people's vote second referendum hashtag crowd have sort of continued moving more europhile 
sort of ahead of wherever the Labour Party moves. So they were saying, we want second referendum with Remain on the ballot. Labour Party moves there. They say, now we want to unilaterally cancel Article 50. Yeah, but I think, but I think if you take that example, right, it's neither liberal nor democratic. Mm-hmm. So its its motivation, I think, is, is quite clearly just to outflank the Labour Party mm-hmm. on Remain. And as I've been saying for a while, you can't out-Remain the Lib Dems because there's nothing else that they really stand for, right? I mean, mm. I think there is a strategic problem they're going to face. Apart from the tax on plastic bags, they love that shit. <laughs> That's they true. They would die on that hill. <laughs> they would die on that hill, and they let other people die on that hill with you know, yeah. more, more, more sanctions for benefit claimants. Bring back hanging, um, but it's a £20 charge for plastic bags. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get they'd be like, they'd sign up. They'd sign up. They'd be like, absolutely. Bring That's it the on. synthesis. <laughs> right. So, so I, I, I think in that particular case, it's just political, political strategy. I mean, I think it's irresponsible, but it seems to be relatively effective. Do you think yeah. it's possible that like Labour will eventually move to a cancel Article 50 position and then the Lib Dems are forced to go even harder remain than that and they get to a point where they're actually hard Brexit because they believe that the EU itself does not want to remain in the EU <laughs> to the extent that they do and by extension want the Labour Party to? <laughs> well, quite. I mean, I, so I've been saying this for a while, right? Like they, get, they went completely nuts when Labour was like, the referendum should be between remain and a credible leave option. So like, well, what mm. did you want? Did you want it as between remain and remain harder? Or remain, <laughs> remain and remain too. with a vengeance? You know? Like, what the fuck? I'll, I'll, I'll live free or remain in the EU. They, they would want to change the name to... They would want to try, change England to, like, England, but with, like, one of those little dashes on top of the E. <laughs> mm. England, England hashtag FPP. Well, I think they, mm. what they want to do is they is <laughs> we, re- we remain, but we also we also build a new public research institution that's just Hogwarts, and <laughs> it has the Sorting Hat that the MIT Media Lab made, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just a bunch of of adults getting child getting childish encouragement. Yeah. So. Oh, go ahead. I have a question, and I uh, just really quickly because Tom, this is sort of a follow up to your previous appearance on the show. Uh, you you mentioned on the last episode we did with you that one of your concerns was that there was a tactical reason for being neutral on uh, on the possibility of remaining at all on the Labour Party's part, but that you were worried that they might hold on to that sort of 2017 consensus so long that they might get things might move under their feet. And they, they did, uh, it seems, move That's to the point where... what's happened. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, if you could comment on that. Uh, do you think that this move to Remain has, become, has happened too late? Or the possibility of Remain is too late? Or do you think that it's salvageable in any capacity? Well, so look, I, I think the position of having a commitment um, to a second referendum being in the heart of the policy is a sensible position, in part because you can't out-Remain the Lib Dems. I think the issue for Labour was that it needed to do three things really at this party conference and I think it it, it it sort of managed one but failed on two. So the first thing was to put the idea that the public would decide front and centre in its policy and I think it did that very effectively. It's a clear, strong, unequivocal commitment to a second referendum um, and making that a legitimate choice and saying this is a real choice, there's an option that's actually workable for leaving, which is possible. Uh, and there is uh, the option of staying staying in the EU. And I think that bit worked relatively well. I then think the second task was then to sort of lean into Remain and say, well, Labour's not a Remain party, but, you know, it backed Remain in 2016, would expect to do so again in the future. You know, the kind of McDonald line of, I'm a Remainer in my heart, that kind of thing. Partly because for Remain voters, who are the vast majority of Labour vote, Labour's voters, uh, Brexit has much higher salience with them, so they care a lot more. They tend to be higher up the income scale, so um, they are a bit more fickle about their choice of political party. Uh, and because for them, Brexit has become an identity issue. And I think it's that idea that you, of needing to show that you understood what it meant to, to them and lean into that position, whilst not going as far as saying Labour is a Remain party and will always campaign for Remain, it could have said, look, it'll be a real choice, but to sort of talk about um, the values and the internationalism and the importance of cooperation and all those kind of things. Instead, that basically failed and it made it sound like Labour was leaning leave rather than leaning Remain. That was the tone that came out of conference and that caused a kind of shitstorm. And then the third thing that Labour needs to do in the conference was then to reassure Labour leave voters for whom the number one issue is austerity, 
wages, those kind of ordinary issues of daily life to show that Labour had a serious response for how to make their lives better, create good jobs, um, sort out broken public services, all of those kind of issues. Um, partly that policy agenda was eclipsed by the row about Brexit because of the inability to lean into Remain and kind of accidentally ending up sounding like you were leaning leave. And partly because of the way that things turned out on the conference floor, that meant that the policies that might have really resonated with those Labour Leave voters, like free social care, for example, or changes to universal credit, which we're expecting will be announced tomorrow, um, that instead those were all drowned out in the noise of abolishing private schools, Green New Deal by 2030, um, uh, abolition of all immigration control, those kind of things, which are very motivating for the Labour's members, which is important for getting the base excited, but weren't part of the political strategy to reach out to the Labour Leave vote um, who are who are disproportionately um, impacted by austerity and have really suffered from, from stagnant wages and declining living standards. So I think that was where the the problem for Labour was at, at, at this conference. I don't think it's actually that Labour necessarily needs to go all the way and be Turbo Remain, but it needed to say, um, the choice is yours, but we know the kind of people we are and the kind of party that we are and, and how we would approach it. Gotcha. So just to just to clarify to people who aren't might not be familiar with polis, with how Labour Party sort of processes, what happened was there were two motions uh, in front of the Labour Party of how to pitch the second referendum and what to campaign for. And uh, now I'm, I'm sure I'll get some details of this wrong, but effectively there were composite 13 and 14 were the two motions. One compelled Labour to come out for Remain, um, and that one was defeated on the floor. One said that the Labour would would remain neutral and would decide what to campaign for after the New Deal, the credible leave option, was negotiated with the European Union, and that's what passed on the on the campaign floor, the conference floor. Yeah, that's yeah. basically right. So I'd like to go a little bit back in time. So, well, okay. so just on the implication yes. of that would yes, be please. that Labour would go into a general election, promising a referendum but not necessarily committing to which way it would campaign in that referendum. So it would then say Labour will have a three-month period where it will seek to renegotiate with the EU. Then after that, it will have a special conference where it will meet and decide whether the deal they've been able to negotiate um, is better than staying in the EU and make a decision then, and then have a referendum and decide it. And the and the thing is, they would be able to negotiate more effectively than the Conservatives because they don't have the Conservatives' red lines that have created such problems as the Northern Irish backstop. Well, so I think I think the thing is, we already know what a Labour deal looks like. It's pretty straightforward. It's the withdrawal agreement, which the EU has said is closed, and it remains closed for all this noise that that the Tories is sort of mm -hmm. making about how they've got the EU to agree to reopen it. That hasn't really happened. The EU has said, well, if you can show us a better alternative legal text you know, knock yourselves out. But that's no change in position. The withdrawal agreement is sold and tents and purposes closed. So we know that. So that a Labour deal, one pillar of it would be um, the withdrawal agreement negotiated by Ter Theresa May. But the deal also has another pillar, which is the political declaration, which is the statement of intent for what they will be negotiated for the future partnership. Labour already knows what would go into that. It was set out in Jeremy Corbyn's 6th of February letter to Theresa May saying, you know, a permanent customs union, close alignment uh, to the single market, protection of workers' rights and environmental protections, security cooperation, and so on. So it's very clear what would be in there. So it's just a matter of updating that 10, 12-page political declaration. So my argument is that could be done in an afternoon, partly because Labour, is, as a responsible opposition party would, has engaged with the Article 50 task force mm -hmm. in Brussels um, over the last couple of years, and they know that that is already negotiable because it is actually the logical and sensible position that you would come to um, in response to the referendum. So the natural response to a close vote to leave would be to say, okay, well, this has to be honoured, so we will leave, but that doesn't mean that we end our economic cooperation. It just means that we put it onto a new and different political basis. That would have been the rational response to a close vote to, to leave. Mm -hmm. So Labour already knows what the deal looks like, and I don't think they need three months. I think they know what it looks like now. 
Um, and that enables the process to be much faster than the six months that the, the motion envisaged. I think that's quite unnecessary. I think you could offer to have a referendum much faster than that because Labour already knows what it wants and knows that that is negotiable because it's the logical position for everyone. It's only it's only Tory crazy Eurosceptic ideology and dogma that has caused this chaos mm. because they cannot accept what a rational and reasonable person who looked objectively at the facts would come up with, which is basically what Labour's proposal is. This is why I think that Theresa May might have to take the can from David Cameron for worst prime minister of all time on the basis that she comes into office, she's presented with the Leave vote, and she's presented with a Leave campaign who have campaigned the entire thing on the basis of we would stay in the single market and customs union. And she decides to out-Leave the Leave campaign and thereby creates this like impossible situation where you have to like pretend that Northern Ireland exists on the internet or some fucking shit in order to like try and make this impossible Brexit Brexit thing work when she could have just come up with like a very simple and sensible Brexit that she could have actually gotten through and fucking retired with her knighthood or whatever the no, shit. No, that, 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 exactly, that is exactly right. And I think what people miss is that Theresa May misunderstood her political task. So she, her real political task was to take a general mandate to leave and translate it into a specific mandate as to how. And if you were going to do that, you'd have a much more collaborative consensual process where you'd build on the areas of overlap and the common ground, you essentially would very early on define Brexit as soft Brexit and be done with it. And then there'd be some Fruit Loops off to the side who'd be saying, no, no, unless we, you know, shell Brussels with gunboats, it's not real Brexit. You know, unless we unleash a plague of locusts on Madrid, it's just not Brexit. Mark Francois frantically tugging at right. people's ankles. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Please, right? sir. Um, and instead, she she went, she marched off down this way, and then she also created, out of nowhere, she generated the demand for no deal. So this rhetoric of no deal is better than a bad deal. Well, any deal that you get, obviously, everyone's going to slag it off and say it's a bad deal. That's the nature of politics. But by framing it as saying, well, actually, there's a better option than than that, it and that's no deal. She created the political demand for for no deal. It's just so politically inept as to be as to be untrue. And she, she never not- intended to have no deal, as we knew all along. I, as you know, I I, I started saying this, you know, in summer of last year. Mm-hmm. No deal is a political hoax. It's never going to happen. Eventually, people were like, oh, I think we're going to leave with no deal. You know, Stephen Bush and the New Statesman mm. wrote article after article after article saying the most likely outcome is that we leave the EU with no deal on the 29th of March. And it was obvious from the beginning that this was a political hoax once you understood the implications of it. Mm. And yet she's now generated a desire in about a third of the public for a no deal Brexit. She's like she's like Don Draper has been cursed by a witch and he can only generate catchy marketing slogans for things he desperately doesn't want to happen. Um uh, my my wife should leave me. Uh, it's toasted. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Draper, you've done it again. Generating no, a, generating, a tragedy. generating a marketing slogan to make your wife divorce you. So that's actually um a feel like as like I said, I feel like this is us playing out the implications of stuff we've discussed before. I kind of want to talk about some of the roots of this. Um, now you've written about like why there are, are these people in the UK that just want that think that no Brexit is real Brexit unless the SAS goes in and perforates all of the uh, European Commission. Like why that is. Um, and there is an excellent article in the London Review of Books by James Meek called "The Two Jacobs," referring to Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, one and- tells truths and one tells all lies. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, you know, you've talked about Euroscepticism as an Atlanticist project for closer integration with the U.S., which I think is generally more friendly to capital than the EU, although, you know, by how much. And the Euroscepticism has this internal function um, being used as the sticking plaster over what uh, Meek refers to as the Thatcher bug, which is the um, contradiction in right-wing politics of reconciling these two strands that are incommensurable. You're incredibly patriotic, worshipful of cops in the military, and Britain is the greatest place in the world, but equally, you also want to subject this country that you claim to love um, to the whims of global capital and then sort of decimate its living standards. Um, and something like Brexit manages to resolve this contradiction. And I'll, sort of, I'll read from this article now as to why. Um, this article about Jacob Rees-Mogg. 
Since his rise to prominence as the informal leader of the hardline conservative Euroskeptics and as a cult figure among Farageists in the country as a whole, many have tried to scratch away at the boundary between the two Jacob Rees-Mogg identities, between the globetrotting emerging markets player who runs SCM, the uh, hedge fund, and the British nationalist who treasures the portrait of Charles I made of hair taken from his chopped off head. He actually has that. What? What? <laughs> that seems like that seems like something like a weird stalker would make as a masturbatory aid. I mean, if anyone's going to be a weird masturbating stalker of Charles the First, who else would it be? Fair enough. He can't sue you for that because who else would it be? We're not yeah. saying he is that person, but if there was one, <laughs> all the signs are in place. <laughs> this, is, this is sort of unrelated, but also like no one has ever seen Jacob Rees-Mogg and Slenderman in the same room. <laughs> so, how, we, how, how Meek plays this out. It is possible to interpret Reese Mogg's personal resolution of the Thatcherite contradiction in a way that lays out this different course. An ultra-low-tax, starveling state, zero tariffs and zero subsidies is, is ideal, but he's prepared to depart from his ideal for the sake of political expediency, provided the model is one of click quickie patronage for a chosen client group. So... Uh, rather than open-ended, community-funded, universal provision as a principle, we combine we combine relentless friendliness to capital uh, with patriotic cultural gestures and spectacles like the launching of aircraft carriers or the birth of royal children that serve as compensation for the mean lives people are forced to live. The launching of royal children, the birth of aircraft carriers. <laughs> commemorative plate after commemorative plate after commemorative Smashing plate. Smashing royal babies on the head with huge magnums of champagne. <laughs> no, that's not even it. Right. Well, so, what does this? Th what does this play to you? That Euroscepticism was this glorious war that both sides of the conservative movement needed. The capital, the, the ultra capitalist and the ultra nationalist conservatives need to resolve the Thatcherite bug. The glory of Brexit and an independent Britain as a sort of trade off for lives withered under the collapse of the welfare state. So, look, I think, I think there's some truth in that analysis, but I think the starting point is to realise that it, that. That the Brexit vote and and Euroscepticism has never been a homogenous movement. It's mm. it's it's never been that. So when I I said um, that it's always, it's best understood as an Atlanticist project, not a unilateralist one, it was referring to that specific group of people who are currently leading the Conservative Party. So I think if you go back to the 2016 poll, it was precisely because Brexit was undefined, and you could imagine any country that you wanted on the other side of it that it was able to scrape a majority of fifty-two percent. So, if you imagine a, a referendum on the electoral system that said, "Do you want to keep the electoral system, or do you want to change the electoral system?" People would say that's a ridiculous question. You need to know what you're going to change it to. But in the referendum on uh, European Union membership, you were just told, "Well, do you want to stay in this thing or leave it?" But leave was entirely undefined. And so I think for some people, it was a kind of little England vision of going back to England's green and pleasant land and not engaging in the world and a sort of isolationist, unilateralist project. Mm. For some, so, and, and that was a lot of that's driven by the sort of nationalist idea, a much more social, social conservatism at the heart of it that says, well, how do we restrain who's in the national community? restrict immigration and try and keep things back to a sort of 1950s vision of Britain. But also contained within it was a kind of um, imperialist vision of Britain, this whole empire 2.0. So some people have this idea of a great global trading nation. A friend of mine recently described it. It's a bit like um, a kind of corpulent, red-faced, gammon, 55-year-old man deciding that he's going to leave his wife and kids, walk out the house because he thinks if he goes to the local nightclub, He'll pick up a twenty-one-year-old, right? That that kind of vision that somehow that kind of buccaneering thing, and then he gets upset when his wife has shut the front door and said, "No, you can't see the kids," and doesn't really understand why why that is. Um, so that's another part of it. And um, but I think this Atlanticist thing, which is the dominant project of the people at the top of the Tory party right now, um is because they have a fundamentally different vision for society. So I don't find Rhys Mogg's um, politics irreconcilable. His politics, it, he just has a different moral basis for what he thinks a good society looks like. So in his view, the, the basic moral structuring is Spartan. You know, the, the, the strong will do as they will, and the weak will suffer what they must. Mm. And it's we that must kind build of a giant pit right. <laughs> into which we will kick. Right, but I think, I think for him, he he would he would see that as a as a, a single swim society is essentially moral, because you know there's a fantastic um, Nietzsche 
um, aphorism, um, which he says, you know, equal to the equal and unequal to the unequal, that is the true slogan of justice. And I think for those people, that is their conception of justice, that people aren't equal, aren't all inherently worthwhile, they aren't all precious. Not everyone gets a nanny. Right. No. And, that, and that some people um, deserve a lot more than others because like, they're either smarter or more hardworking, all these other things. But that's the moral basis for the society in which they want to create. Now, I find that abhorrent, and I think a lot of us, well, I hope everybody who would consider themselves on the left would find that vision of society absolutely abhorrent. But it doesn't mean that's not their vision. And I think that's what it is, or that they don't consider that moral. I think they do consider that moral. And they look across the Atlantic and they say, see, it's better for everyone because it creates a more dynamic um, uh, economy and society. And that actually, um, the current uh, European model holds the best back and it inappropriately props the worst of us up. And that that result is bad for everyone would be their their analysis. I think that's a total nonsense. I don't think that's the way the world works. I don't know the way the world should work. Um, and so for them, the route out of that sort of soggy European social democracy and into this more Spartan world is through leaving the European Union, striking a trade deal with the US and creating a society with much lower levels of social protection. Mm -hmm. And the fact that... Um, you know, he they likes want a raw dog society, <laughs> right? But the fact the fact they want to sort of wave the flag and all that—it's the Hannah Rent thing of you know, it's an alliance of the elite and the mob, and the mm. elite is trying to create a Spartan society. And how do they work up the mob in order to support that? Well, you know, they go around singing "Rule, Rule Britannia" and um, waving the Union Jack and um, all of this sort of stuff. And I think the other bit is, I do think that there is an inherited. This is the final part. Is that I think contained within Brexit is an inherited um, understanding of the way that the world is that believes that the world is fundamentally organised into hierarchies. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily realise this, but I think most people, most people tend to think that the world exists in hierarchical structures. Mm. So you see that quite often if you talk to people who aren't that engaged in politics, they will think things like councillors report into MPs that London MPs report to the Mayor of London, that the Mayor of London reports to, that there is a hierarchical sort of reporting structure. And the way that people understand the world is hierarchical structuring of it. I'm not saying that that is universal, but there are a large number of people who think of the world in hierarchical terms. And I think in that analysis of the world, you know, it, um, in the inheritance is this idea that the UK belongs in the top tier of nations. That the natural order of things is that the US, that the UK rules the world. The Second World War came along because the Americans were just much bigger. We shared the top spot with them, and that was kind of fine because hey, they speak English and they're like us anyway. That mm -hmm. the next tier down is other English-speaking nations, so Canada, Australia, New Zealand. That's tier two. Tier three is other white European countries. You know, tier four it just sort of works its way around the world, and then tier five are you know, brown people from all over the world that they don't have very much respect for at all. And I think the inherited reasoning for a segment of that Brexit um, vote was the idea that somehow the European Union was a trap that puts the UK into tier three when the natural order of things is for the UK to be in tier one. And that drives that sense of an inherited hierarchy in the world also drives that Atlanticist project because it's seen as restoring the natural order of things, which is white English-speaking men rule the world, which I do think is part of the story in all of this. Much I less popular Beyonce it. track. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just had a quick question. It, it seems at times that every every time a, a solution is posited, there's a, there's an agreement or something put forth. There's always this contingent that demands to be heard or indulged that says, no, this thing that might exist is better. That we could we could get a great trade deal tomorrow with the United States. We could do X or Y, and it just see. I, I wonder if do you feel like we're going to run out of that? Like there's going to come a point where they're going to say stop, or is it going to be this continual indulgence of this idea that just like the guy who you're describing who who thinks he could take home a model but hasn't yet had to move into a bedsit, they haven't yeah. been confronted with reality. What I'm saying is yeah. that Brussels is going to make us a bedsit, and we're going to have to move there. Well, no, I mm -hmm. think look, I think there are some people who are just where where the dominant 
factor is is sort of a bellicose idiocy, right? Marc Francois represents that strand. And where we he, love him for it. Where, exactly. Where he genuinely, I think, believes that no deal is an optimal outcome because he's too stupid to understand what it is. And he sort of... He went paintballing once and it changed his life. I've said it before, I'll say it again. <laughs> right. But for, for the most part, I don't... This is not the question of letting best get in the way of good enough. Mm-hmm. Right, so why did the ERG oppose May's withdrawal agreement so strongly and object so strongly to the backstop? It wasn't technical; it was because it would have been a strategic defeat. And the reason for that is the backstop, as a term, is very, very misleading. Mm-hmm. The backstop was not a fallback; it's the default because it's contingent on. So leaving the backstop is contingent on a known question which is the Irish border question, to which there is no known answer, right? It may as well in the agreement said, you can leave the backstop once the Prime Minister presents uh, the President of the European Council with a jar of magic beans. So actually, the backstop was the destination and should have been assessed as the destination. And the political declaration that May produced said that the future partnership will build on the arrangements in the withdrawal agreement. Mm. So really, the deal that May negotiated was contained within the backstop, and that was high degree of regulatory alignment, customs union with the European Union, which was their number one negotiating priority, in return for which the UK could decide its own immigration system and didn't have to pay very much money. So that was the core of the deal, which was keeping the UK in the regulatory and trade orbit of the European Union. But precisely because the people now running the Conservative Party's objective is Atlanticist, that is why they were prepared to fight to the death on May's withdrawal agreement, because they would have got a formal victory because Britain would be out the EU, but had a strategic defeat because of their fundamental objective was a realignment of Britain away from the European bloc and towards the US. Mm -hmm. So in a sense... Strategically, it was logical for them to fight to the death, right? But it's only people who think, who look at it at a very high level and say, well, you know, at least May's thing was Brexit. Well, it's Brexit in a very formal sense, but the real underlying objective was this realignment in world politics towards the US. And May's agreement would have prevented that by keeping the UK in the European sphere. I find like really posh English people who have this fascination with like an American way of doing things really interesting because they invariably have like utter contempt for Americans and the American way of life. Like they've seen like what it produces, which is like huge amounts of cheap mass produced products and like poverty and kind of like this weird kind of society where like class is entirely defined by money and there's nothing more important than where you fit into the hierarchy of like the kind of pseudo American class system, right? Uh, but then they also like weirdly aspire oh, but wait, to but wait. it. Wait, so so look at look at so so it's people like Soames, right? The really posh ones want to stay in mm. the EU for exactly that reason. And Jacob Rees-Mogg is, a, is, in a sense, a new money guy, right? Yes, his father was editor of the Times and part of that kind of the establishment, but his wealth comes from from his hedge fund. It's a kind of new money city finance construct. So it's not the old established posh, you know, who who kind of did that. And and in the referendum, the kind of red trouser brigade, you know, votes to leave, but it was in that kind of petty little Englander type mm. way. But Rhys Mogg is not in that, he's neither a petty little Englander, but nor is he that kind of aristocratic posho. It's that somewhere mm. in between of having all the pettiness of the little Englander and the kind of social conservatism ally, aligned with the kind of grubby, um, money-grabbing um, city boy kind of dynamic that's going on there, right? Farage was a trader, mm. Rhys Mogg, a, a hedge fund manager, Aaron Banks, financial services and insurance and so on. There is, mm. it is quite striking that all these people's Aaron money Banks comes played from played by the Duke from Layer Cake. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important actually that all the, the leading proponents, their background is in finance. Mm. And that's because you can do that globally and it doesn't really matter what your relationship with the EU is and you can make a lot of money out of it. Mm. What I'm saying is I'd love to see a Jacob Rees-Mogg speech where it has to be like, no, we're going to have a trade deal with the, the United States and it's going to be fantastic. We're going to be able to import lots of... Then he just casts his gaze down at a kipboard and has to say, Mr. Pibb. <laughs> <laughs> 
I There's lots one... and lots of plastic cheese. Mm. I, for one, have no desire to have a, a Range Rover when I could have a Jeeped Cherokee. <laughs> <laughs> one Jeeped Cherokee, please, barkeep. <laughs> yeah. I, so, so the, I, 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 do, I do so think that Britain could be built for tough. <laughs> um, but I want to go back to Ireland a little bit as well, because we've touched on this, that contain that the withdraw the the thing preventing any workable brexit from being a properly atlanticist project is essentially the uk's relationship with ireland with the republic of ireland and northern ireland ironically 40 years of the americans funding irish terrorism (laughs) (laughs) damn (laughs) that's that's an irony twist for you well so i think look i think i think that if you look at the december 2017 initial draft of the withdrawal agreement produced by the uh EU negotiators, because because we were too shit to draft our own text, so they wrote it for us. Um, it was David an, Davis was busy; he was sca- scanning everyone's vulnerability to attack. We hate you, but you do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. And um, that the backstop then was only for Northern Ireland, and it was because the DUP, for whom Theresa May was dependent for a majority, um, said, "Well." That's basically dividing our sovereign territory between Northern Ireland and the rest of the mainland UK. That the backstop scope was extended from being Northern Ireland only to covering the whole of the UK on a customs union. So that was the motive. I I think that if if let's say there is a scenario where Boris Johnson wins an election, he's not going to go for no deal because the chaos is too costly and. The, the the sort of constituency of the Conservative Party contained in the business community would be too outraged if he actually did it. I think that instead they'll just sell out the the the, the unionists, and what we'll end up with is a border in the Irish Sea, and basically the price for Brexit would have been a united Ireland, which for a lot of us I think would just say great, um, but for. Uh, the so-called Conservative and Unionist Party, that's a bit more of a problem, but they don't seem to really give a fuck. Yeah. I mean, you've seen the polling where, you know, Conservative Party members basically say they don't care if they lose Northern Ireland. I think that's probably true. But I think that if he wins a majority, we'll basically return to Theresa May's withdrawal agreement, but the backstop will be uh, Northern Ireland only, which means that the UK won't be within the customs union, which means that he can go off and no- negotiate his trade deal with the Americans, and kind of basically let everyone forget about what's going on in Northern Ireland. I sort of privately think that's like Southern Ireland's worst nightmare position, but of course they can never say that as being given back Northern Ireland because like Northern Ireland is such a like, have this huge basket of problems. <laughs> it's yours now, a country no, so with much fewer resources. Well, so that, that, but there is a strong strain of that within Irish politics of saying, mm. well, this is, this is a very difficult thing. And the way the border poll works is that for... Northern Ireland's position to change, it needs both both um, the Republic of Ireland and the North to be in favour of it. And so it's not entirely clear how that vote goes. Now, I think emotionally, in the end, when presented the choice of a united island or not, even if it carries high economic costs, I think that they would probably vote in a mm. border poll um, to go for a united island. But there is a very substantial body of opinion within the Irish Republic um, that says they don't they don't want that poorer part of the island of Ireland and all the attendant problems. I think, mm. but more than that, de facto, um, if there is a Northern Ireland only backstop, then de facto there has been unification because mm. the UK no longer has a role in deciding the trade nor regulatory policies for a part of its territory, which are now being decided by Brussels. Damn, Northern Ireland is still separate, but it's just being run by Brussels now. Yeah, <laughs> just direct rule. There's a compromise. Yeah. There's a compromise position for you. Uh, yeah, that's ba- that, and that's basically what I think will, is likely to happen if Boris Johnson gets a deal that it will become a Northern. The backstop become Northern Ireland. So in effect, there is basically nothing Boris Johnson can do that will not split the conserv- that will not split the conservative vote in some considerable way. No, I don't think any. I don't think most of the Conservative Party really. I mean, they bluster and ca- say they care about the DUP and all that kind of stuff. But I think that was a device to oppose May's deal. And I think, in truth, if it becomes a Northern Ireland only backstop. They would be pretty comfortable with it. In the same way that if if May had not gone for the general election, and had not required the DUP to be ordered to in order to form a government, I think that you 
we probably would have been out of the EU by now with the withdrawal agreement as per the December 2017 draft and Northern Ireland would be in a different regulatory and customs territory to the rest of the UK. Now, um, so this is this is by way of sort of moving us on to, with this basis in place to looking back towards the, the near future because it seems like the Tories will have to run an election on on a concrete Brexit outcome for the first time, whether that, right? Because they, they have to say what they're going to do at this point if we continue kicking the can of no deal down the road. No, because I think they'll, they'll, do, they'll go back to essentially saying if you vote Conservative, they'll leave the EU either with a great deal or with no deal. They'll just carry on the fiction. Mm. And um, I think then that also we have to ask some of the same questions about Labour. Um, what are we going to promise in an election? Because we can't just keep proce- promising processes. We have to promise some outcomes. But also, you've written a Guardian article recently, and it occurs in the um, this this text occurs in the following paragraph, comparing the upcoming 2019 and 2020 or 2020 election to that of 1945, which for American listeners was a victory for Labour under Clement Attlee, which led to the creation of the NHS. You've written, it is possible to detect a, detect a pattern, a moment of crisis, a decade of collapse, and a period of rebuilding. More than 10 years on from the global financial crisis, there is a real possibility that the 2020s will define our political and economic settlement for an entire generation. So, in effect, what we need to do is understand that the Brexit crisis has more or less been resolved, with the exception of these last couple of moves. Um, and well, well, so I, yes. I, I, I think, so the crisis that I'm referring to there is, is the, the financial crisis. The financial crisis of 2008 that then sort of reverberates around. Um, and we've had 10 years of, of crisis, of stagnant wages. I said crisis a, twice. A, yeah, a wrecking, of, a wrecking of the public realm um, by the Conservatives through their austerity policies, um, and we're nowhere near out of it. And the recovery from the 2008 uh, recession was the slowest recovery since the Second World War. So it has been a very painful decade. It's what Gramsci referred to as the interregnum, um, when the old is dead, but the new cannot yet be born. And that's what we're living through, I think, right now, which is why I think this election could be so consequential, because the choice is, do you continue that going or accelerate it? This sort of, And I think that US trade deal thing is an acceleration of that, right? This sort of ultra-flexible labor market. So if you, thought, if you think precarious work is bad, then imagine putting the whole of the UK's employed population onto a fire at will contracts, right? I mean, that's where it ends. In the US, most states, it's employment at will. So if you just decide you don't like someone's face the next day, you I've can just I've never had them. a job in the US that wasn't at will. I've right. never had a job that you had like a guaranteed contract and they couldn't terminate it at any time. And that's, that's what I'm, it's normal to me. So like, I don't know if British yeah. people know what they stand to lose in that regard. Mm. So exactly, right? So at the moment, you've got a million people on zero hours contracts. But actually, you could you could move the entire workforce onto that precarious basis. So the idea that this is as flexible as UK labour markets could be—I think flexibility is such a dreadful description. It's 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 basically forcing all of the risk onto individuals rather mm. than being taken by companies. It's just it's exploitation as a better let's call it an exploitative labour market. But I think there's a much much, much further to go in that exploitative labour market in the 2020s if we make a choice to go in that direction. The other choice is to have the deep and fundamental reforms to the economy to make it fairer and more successful, because the other thing is that the research now shows that more equal economies have stronger and more stable growth paths. So actually, this is not a question of, can you do you have to be uh, unfair in order to be successful? Actually, countries like Denmark or Sweden or Germany tend to show that the the fairer your economy is, the stronger its growth and the more stable that growth path is. So there's a choice facing us about which way we go, which is why I think this election is so hugely consequential. Do we continue to run down public services or do we invest in them? Mm. Do we? T- if you take, for instance, what's happened with social care, in the last 10 years, there's been a 27% reduction in the number of people receiving state-funded social care in a period when demand is rising, right? So if you look, the total quantum of social care has not reduced. What's happened is there has been an explosion in informal care. So instead of that burden being shared by the community, it's been pushed onto individual families. Carers are often elderly people caring for a spouse. 
or it's their children or neighbours and so on. And essentially, rather than having the community shoulder that responsibility fairly, it's being forced onto individual families. So you could see a world in which we go into the 2020s becoming more exploitative in the economy and um, less and less solidarity in public services. And that is one direction, which I think if the Conservatives, um, led by Boris Johnson, uh, go for this US model of a sink or swim society, that's where we're heading. And the alternative is having the, the, the deep and fundamental reform. And those and that that desire to do those reforms isn't isn't solely located within the Labour Party. Right? The Labour Party is more committed to it and it's a more expensive program. But, you know, the SNP have set up a Scottish National Investment Bank, for example, right? The Lib Dems have written some pretty good stuff on corporate governance reform. It's not perfect, but there is there are a set of parties that are more committed to changing the political and economic system versus the regressive parties. Now, I'm not saying they're all the same. They're not. Um, Labour clearly goes much, much further. But there is a, a broader set of, of broadly speaking, progressive forces that could succeed in this election. But Labour will never out-plastic bag the Lib Dems. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, true. Just, just, to, just to also then quickly clarify sort of what I mean is, how do we promise that without letting... How do we promise solving the real crisis without letting the fake crisis suck up all the air? Well, so it's not a fake crisis in a sense, right? It, it, it is a real crisis. It's just the broader crisis refracting through that prism. And I don't think just telling people that this thing that you think is really important isn't important is going to be successful. And in a way, I think Labour having a clearer position about where it stands would enable it to pivot to more different issues. At the moment, I think because of the the failure of strategy at conference, it is constantly going to be questioned about whether um, its plan for a second referendum is a secret plan to leave. And I don't think it needed to be that way. I think if Labour had emphasised the second referen- referendum but shown that it, it, it shared a value set with Remainers about being international and cooperative and all that kind of stuff, that might have enabled it to have pivoted to more domestic policy issues. But I think it's going to be very hard. And I think the other problem is that Labour Party Conference also passed such a range of different things that it's quite hard to get a clear message, I think, for most people, because it just sounds so broad-ranging from abolishing private schools to abolishing immigration control to um, a Green New Deal by 2030 and so on. I think that stuff... um, is sort of familiar territory for the politically engaged. I don't think it translates terribly easily into the public um, because it's not sufficiently specific. So saying you want net zero by 2030 is great, um, but it's not great if you can't explain how you're going to do it because then the voter says, okay, well, what does that mean? And we don't have an answer right now of, well, what that means is this because we don't know. And so I think think there is going to be a real challenge to communicate those policies okay so we just have to we just have to make these things more real make these things more concrete what are we going to do next well don't forget that labor's manifesto isn't decided by party conference labor's manifesto is decided by something called the clause five meeting um and that's one of the tensions within the labor party is that conference appears to be the sort of sovereign body but it kind of isn't because there are all these other mechanisms that exist so the Clause 5 meeting will decide what's in the manifesto. I think once they've made those decisions about what's in it, um, then it gets clearer as to where the campaign messaging goes. I suspect it will be things like, you know, free social care will be front and centre in in that. Change to the benefit system, I'm sure, will be, you know, absolutely a heart of, of what, mm. what Labour um, does. I'm less convinced that um, some of the measures around immigration change to the immigration rules will be in the will make it through the clause five meeting, partly because what we've seen the last couple of days is that Shadow Cabinet members have um let's say had a less than enthusiastic response to the passing of that motion. Mm. Well I feel like also it's one of those things where of course, the Labour Party has, you know, strategies to then decide what actually goes into a manifesto because you can't devolve the strategizing of winning an election in the UK, one of the most insane countries on earth, to like 
a bunch of people who just happen to like good things at a party conference. Like those people are not political strategists. That's not why they're there. They're there because they own too many pairs of sandals. Like that's never gonna <laughs> like as much as we like those people and we would like to take on board some of their values. Like I, I always every time I watch like a Labour conference, I'm always like everyone thinks that the Labour Party like governance is as weird as Labour Party members, which is not true. But like but like I don't know, just always like a very frustrating of just like assuming the the views of like some people who are like a bit too enthusiastic about going to conferences are like the views of the Labour Party itself. Yeah, I mean, I would I would take a lot of those positions at Labour Party conference as being a statement of principle and intent. So the Labour Party is saying it is really passionate and committed to it with real urgency confronting the climate crisis head mm. on. Now, the precise details of how they're going to do that haven't been worked out, but there is an absolute statement of intent of that commitment. You know, there mm-hmm. is a statement of intent um, to uh, be open-minded and liberal about immigration policy and to value uh, migrant workers and their rights. That's a statement of intent. I don't think in either case is it a fully worked through policy, but it's, you know, 250-word motion in a party conference. Like, inevitably, it's not going to be a fully worked through mm-hmm. policy position. But I do think it is incumbent upon parliamentary part of the Labour Party to take um, those commitments from the membership very seriously because mm. I think that in a democratic party they should now they need to work out a plan and show how they've how they've listened to those uh, commitments but you know no policy is going to be restricted to 250 words in a motion because the world is more complicated than that mm-hmm. I think w- one thing we know is that volatility is up mm-hmm. right the range of possible outcomes is is greater than ever before, partly because you've got this four-party politics, partly because Brexit is polluting the the sort of body politic. And that can just produce a series of very random results. I think right now, I think there's a chance that there's an anti-Tory majority in the House of Commons and that Jeremy Corbyn is walking into Downing Street. But I couldn't tell you whether that chance is 30% or 60%. I simply couldn't give you a really good sense of the probability I think the range of possible outcomes, I can't at the moment see a path to a Labour majority government. Um, That's partly just one of the consequences of the strength of the SNP. Um, Equally, I find it hard to see the path to a Tory majority government, but I think it's easier to see that path than to see a Labour majority government. But I think probably most likely is something in between a a hung parliament I could see quite convincingly. both Labour and the and the Tories moving back a bit in terms of seats, seeing advances from the Lib Dems and the SNP, and just seeing where that shakes out in terms of who holds the overall balance of power. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is volatility is very high, and the range of possible outcomes is much greater than uh, any election I think in in living memory. So that's it, everybody. Invest in the VIX. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, as ever, uh, Tom, thank you for coming and making a muddled world a little bit clearer for us and our listeners. It's always Pleasure. a delight to have you on. Fun to be here. And uh, as everyone also knows, there's a Patreon. You can subscribe to it. Um, five bucks a month gets you the second episode. And I don't think we have any plugs as a group, but Milo, uh, do you? Yeah, 9th of October, there's going to be another smoke comedy. We had our first one of the autumn on Wednesday, and that was lots of fun. Um, I can't remember right now who the headline is going to be, but it's going to be it's going to be a fun show. You should come yeah. down and see that on the 9th of October. Uniquely. There'll be a link in the description there. Excellent. Um, and I think we still have a couple more t-shirts left, so if you're a size... Medium. Medium. Only if you're medium. Under large, I think, no, there too. are some there's, large. There's some yeah. larges left yeah. too. Yeah, I think there are some two XL. If you're an extremely thick boy or girl, and you, or if you want to dress, or if, yeah. just, if you want to bring back early '90s baggy style, exactly. we have some. Yeah. All right. If you want to look like big smoke. <laughs> All right, everybody. Talk to you later. Bye.